Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott, produced on the lands of the Woiwurrung and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. And I wish to acknowledge that these lands were stolen and that sovereignty has never been ceded. I pay my respects to all Elders past and present and to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples who are listening today. That was the audio from a people's protest in Kenya in 2015 where the government was planning to lift the ban on GMO crops there. The imposition of GMO agriculture by multinational corporations on local and indigenous small to medium scale farming communities has been a site of contention for quite some time now all over Africa, as it has everywhere in the world. But mass protests like this are set to increase as recent scientific research around a relatively new type of genetic engineering technology called gene drives has become one of the latest and most horrifying examples of the kind of disingenuous paternalism the world has long associated with the impacts of Western and neoliberal colonialism, that ever-resilient many-headed hydra, where every time you cut off one head, it just grows another more devious and more insidious one that comes straight back at you. Today on the show, we'll hear from Mariam Basse-Oruje from Friends of the Earth Africa and the Alliance for Food Sovereignty Africa, or AFSA, about how biosynthetic research organisations funded by the Gates Foundation are rushing headlong into their own proposed field studies in two villages in Burkina Faso in the attempt to engineer gene-drive mosquitoes using the CRISPR technique as part of an ongoing branch in gene-drive research globally that claims it will eradicate malaria and about the outcomes from the 2018 United Nations Biodiversity Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh three months ago, where gene drive and CRISPR technology was the hot topic. We'll also hear from Zara Malou, an independent journalist and filmmaker from Kenya, who produced a documentary last year about what's been really happening in Burkina Faso, called A Question of Consent, as well as more information about the real agenda and driving force behind gene drives, who are the big players? Who ultimately profits from it? And how? More about the Africa situation later. But speaking of colonialism, right here in good old Oz, we're also gearing up for the big fight against the corporate push for gene drives, as well as a radically concerning new type of editing technique commonly known as CRISPR that gene drives incorporate. Louise Sales, a biologist and conservationist from Friends of the Earth's Emerging Tech Campaign, explains. I first got alerted to the issue of gene editing and new techniques such as CRISPR by some colleagues in the US when I was doing some digging on and synthetic biology, they, they basically said to me, oh, we think you really need to be working on this because nobody in Australia is really paying attention to this. Australia is really pushing to deregulate new GM techniques such as CRISPR and also um, to release gene drives as well. Australia could be the first country in the world to release um, gene drives into the environment, which is deeply concerning. There's a range of new genetic engineering techniques that the government is referring to as gene editing. And these include the new GM technique CRISPR, which some people might have heard of. And the, what the government's proposing, the federal government, is is actually deregulating a number of these new GM techniques. They're arguing that they only make small, precise changes to the genome, and therefore they pose no greater risk than normal traditional breeding and then therefore don't need to be regulated either. Unfortunately, that is completely untrue. What the science is showing us is that these techniques pose the same risks as older GM techniques and need to be assessed for safety in the same way. All of these techniques can cause unexpected mutations. So we're really deeply concerned that the federal government's proposing deregulating these techniques. I mean, it was really clear from the way their discussion paper was framed from the people on their advisory committees that this whole process has basically been stacked. What's happening now is the federal government has to go out to the states 
and get their sign off on it. So obviously a number of states are concerned because a number of states have still got moratoria on GMOs like Tasmania and South Australia and a number of other states are concerned about their potential exports if they deregulate these techniques because, for example, Europe and New Zealand have both said that they're going to regulate these techniques as GM. So any products produced using these techniques need to be assessed for safety and they need to be labelled, which we would argue is a really sensible (laughs) conclusion to come to. But that obviously raises major problems for Australia as a food exporter if they're going to deregulate these techniques because how if there's no regulation, there'll be no tracking, there'll be no requirement for crop producers to notify people that they're using them in the supply chain. And I think what's really important here is that this isn't just about GM crops, this is about GM animals as well and potentially microbes. If these techniques are deregulated, basically Australia would be the first country in the world to deregulate genetically modified animals, which poses a whole raft of ethical issues and it's something that we're really concerned about. Around the time last year that the proposal to deregulate this technology started going on was around the same time that the Malaysian-based NGO, the Third World Network, obtained documents through the US Freedom of Information Act, the so-called gene drive files. And some of these revealed that CSIRO in Australia have partnered with US military to develop genetically engineered mice using this technology, actually in Geelong, in Victoria, do you know much about that? And the only reason that we found found out that this was going on at all was because of the documents that the Third World Network obtained. That was the first that I'd heard of this. I'd seen that the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator had released some guidance on gene drive research, which I thought was a bit odd. I was like, oh, where'd that come from? I was already a bit suspicious that something was afoot. And of course, yeah, it turns out the CSRO has been sitting down with our gene technology regulator and helping them draw up guidelines about how these techniques should be regulated, which is obviously completely inappropriate. The other people that they're partnering with are the WA Department of Conservation. And the proposal is actually to release these gene drive mice in offshore islands in WA. Now, one of the islands that they're talking about releasing them on is just a kilometre away from the mainland. So the idea that they're somehow going to contain these gene drive mice there is, yeah, I mean, it's just ludicrous. There's no way that they can contain them. It's a holiday island where people paddle back and forth on their kayaks. A gene drive is basically a new technique where you can basically drive a a certain gene through a population. So in this case, they're proposing to try and release gene drive mice, which have no female offspring, so that the population will drive itself really quickly to extinction and this yeah, work, is, as you said, is being funded by the US military's research arm, DARPA, which again raises serious ethical questions. DARPA is not going to fund research unless there's a potential military application. And the potential military applications of gene drives are, are really disturbing. So, for example, you could genetically engineer insects to carry pathogens. You could develop crops that eliminate staple food crops in countries. And I mean, there's a whole range of really sinister applications. And I think what's really significant is that there's absolutely no way that you can contain mice. I mean, mice are present on every continent in the world apart from Antarctica because they're really good at stowing away on ships. That's why they've spread globally. To some farmers, I think they might think, oh, what's the problem if mice are eliminated? But mice are a cornerstone species in places where they're from, naturally like Europe, and they're at the basis of the food chain. And we don't know what kind of ecological havoc we're going to cause if we drive that species to extinction. Well, absolutely. As you said, there's a total containment issue on those islands. And then theoretically, if they're testing them on the islands, that is to eventually implement them on the mainland anyway. So either way, there's biodiversity implications with that for sure. And it would seem to me that the biodiversity impacts of that could be quite significant in regards to feral animals are now really quite a part of our ecosystems in Australia. Yeah, and they've certainly found that where they have eliminated certain species, that it has created havoc ecologically. I mean, there's no question that things like feral cats are a real problem in the Northern Territory, but we would argue that there's much more effective ways of dealing, proven ways of dealing with feral species like that. For example, you could be paying Indigenous rangers to shoot them, which is 
creating local livelihoods. It's not a high-risk technology that there's not any guarantee it will even work. And I think that's one of the other things with gene drives is evolution has a way of getting around if you put a barrier in place. There's strong evidence to show that animals will develop resistance to gene drive because there's going to be a really strong selective pressure for them to do that. If you use the example of cats, any gene drive cats that could work away around the gene drive are going to do extremely well and their genes will spread through the population. So certainly the research that has been done so far suggests that gene drives are not only very risky, but there's a very high chance that they won't work either. All that money is going to go into that research that could be spent on proven conservation techniques that actually are effective. Exactly. Yeah, it sounds risky. It sounds like there's evidence that it doesn't always work or that it actually can be counterproductive. And also, I was just sort of thinking to myself, well, just getting back to the mice example, would there be impacts on native mice? And I thought, do native mice breed with house mice? And I did a little bit of digging around. I did find a Uni of Melbourne paper that was published in 2014 that said that they they do, they can, they don't usually, it's not common, but they found like 17% crossbreeding rates between native mice and house mice. So then I thought, well, what are the implications with that? It just seems like there's a lot of questions and not many answers at this point. Yeah, and from talking to the scientists, I think they just want to do the work. It's not even proven that mice are a huge problem in these islands in WA. It's just like they're just looking for, you know, a problem to solve. Certainly rats can predate seabird eggs, but I'm not aware of any examples of mice doing that in Western Australia. So I think it's highly questionable. Apart from the mice, are there any other project proposals in Australia with animals? There's a CSRO proposal to develop and gene drive cane toads. And there's been talk about um, carp as well, but I'm not sure where that's up to. Because again, there's, there's no transparency here about what research is going on in the lab. We only generally hear about it when they're ready for a field trial or environmental release. As far as CRISPR research, CRISPR is being used um, across a whole range of, of fields. So there's a lot of CRISPR research going on in medicine. It's being used to develop animal models of human disease. There's a bunch of research going on in animals as well to try and produce animals that produce more meat. So super muscly pigs, that's not... Australian specific research but there's a range of research going on globally which is all basically geared towards maximizing the productivity of animals pushing them to their biological limits which again we would argue is very ethically problematic you're not actually fixing the broken agricultural system that we've got you're just trying to make the animals in it fit the broken uh, system better so there there's a whole bunch of research that's going on trying to develop and disease resistant animals um so for example pigs so you can house pigs intensively without them getting pneumonia which we would argue is a completely wrong-headed way of dealing with the problem actually you shouldn't be housing pigs in those conditions at all it's completely inhumane and unethical and you just intensifying those systems even further, which is a real problem. In case you're wondering, CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspace Short Palindromic Repeats. This drastically radical genome editing technique hit international headlines in November last year when Chinese scientist Hong Jinkui sent shockwaves through the global scientific community by announcing out of the blue that he had genetically edited the DNA of twin baby human girls using the CRISPR technique. I think it's just an example of, of why we really need regulation. You're just going to see more and more examples of rogue scientists doing really unethical research if there's absolutely no regulation at all. Because basically, if these techniques are deregulated here, there's going to be no oversight of animal research that's going on, my, microbial research that's going on, plant research that's going on. And the risk of rogue actors, I would say, would increase dramatically if these techniques aren't regulated. It's really quite horrifying. I mean, there's not been a lot of discussion about the potential biosecurity risks, but even really small changes to microbial genomes can really increase their pathogenicity. You don't necessarily need a sinister rogue act. It could just be someone messing around in their bedroom lab, you know, that could create a harmful pathogen. There's no regulatory oversight. There's a very real risk that these things won't even get picked up. 
You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today on the show, big profits for agribusiness and military are posing an unprecedented threat to our environment and biodiversity by recklessly risking the spread of a new GMO technology called gene drives around the world, regardless of their currently largely unknown, unquantified and undocumented potential consequences. We've been speaking with Louise Sales from Friends of the Earth Australia's Emerging Tech campaign about how gene drive technology is being used by the CSIRO in partnership with the US military and WA Department of Conservation to genetically code mice populations into extinction with proposed field studies in WA in the wings. But meanwhile, in Africa... Biosynthetic research organisations funded by the Gates Foundation are rushing headlong into their own proposed field studies in two villages in Burkina Faso in the attempt to engineer gene-drive mosquitoes using the CRISPR technique as part of an ongoing branch in gene-drive research globally that claims it will eradicate malaria. But grassroots farmers and environmentalists on the ground are asking, does all this hype around the conservation and health benefits of gene drives essentially amount to a stealth way to introduce this new and profoundly dodgy-sounding GMO technology with disingenuous white saviourism and some good old-fashioned greenwashing? Marion Bassi Oruje from Friends of the Earth Africa and the Alliance for Food Sovereignty Africa, or AFSA, explains... What's happening on the ground then in Burkina Faso? Target Malaria say they are already conducting so-called community outreach. Have they actually got consent there or even at that level are they having problems? You'd be shocked to know that most of them are not even aware of what is going on. Their consent was not sought. We also hear that some people have been paid as more or less than maybe $2 or so so they can put up their hands or bring out their legs at this new GM mosquitoes can bite them with these huge experiments. How do you even do that? Why do you want to use us as, as lab rats? Why? I mean, Africa should not be treated as a test zone for risky experiments, you know? Yeah, same yeah. old story with That's Africa, that. isn't it? Exactly, exactly. What happened in Africa must be discussed with Africans, not decided from a lab on the other side of the continent. As Africans, we should be able to decide what is best for us. So most of them did not even know what is going on. I mean, contrary to what... Target Malaria would say, of course, they have a lot of money. It's a billion dollars funded project. They have money from Bill Gates. They have money from some big corporations and all that. And for us, we feel this is just not the end result. I mean, the end result will be agriculture because that's where we have these biggest players of gene drives because that's where there's a lot of money. So we feel this is just an inroad. They've said, okay, medical are trying to save Africa from malaria. But hey, there are other ways to save people from malaria. So even on the ground at that local level, not surprisingly, there's no transparency. Most people don't even know about it, let alone giving free prior and informed consent. Yeah. I mean, civil society groups operating in and around the test site villages were baffled as to why they too have not been consulted about a technology with far-reaching consequences. You won't believe that. I mean, these are civil society groups who work in that area where these people, they didn't consult them. I think what they do, did was to go to the village and convince, I don't want to use the word but some people and get them the same language with them, but the majority of the people are not happy with this. They didn't get their consent. Maybe they will speak to, I mean, just like what was happening during the colonial era, they'll meet the chiefs, I mean, buy over the chiefs and the chiefs will not say, we are the people. I mean, the chiefs are not the people. They're not the people. The people are more than just a selected few who decide to maybe give money or give them some gifts and then decide that we've gotten the consent of the generality of people. No, this can never be the whole people. The whole people means the whole village, the whole community, people of Burkina Faso, women, children, people working in the community, civil society groups who have worked with people in neighboring villages, me here in Nigeria, who might be affected. You, you didn't ask me anything. You can't just come to my house and decide what is good for me. No way. It doesn't work that way. We are not slaves. This is not a colonial era. Hey, wake up. You're in my country, my territory. Ask me, do I want this? And hell no, I don't want it. I don't want your gene drives. Take them away. Take them so you can use them in your lab. You can do whatever you want with them. Not in my environment, not in my tummy, not, not anywhere near me because you cannot guarantee the producers or the creators, so to speak, of these technologies can't guarantee their safety. 
I mean, we have issues of contamination. Even with the first generation GMOs, don't talk about Symbio. I mean, these gene drugs that are even more high tech must be internationally agreed and put in practice before any further research can proceed, even in the lab. You can't contain these in a particular environment. I mean, you have countries like, I mean, who are closely bordering with other countries. You can't just say because it's in Africa, it will not have a potential impact on other countries. Mm. I mean, remember the Starlink scandal. I mean, I don't know if you remember that in the US, where a variety of maize, which was engineered for animal feed, even though it was meant for animal feed, it found itself into the food chain. And the contamination was not just contained in the US, it was found in the food aid, the shipment that was sent from the US to South Korea and to other Latin American countries, and people denounced them. So with genetically modified organisms and food and products that even the developers or the inventors, so to speak, cannot control, you are not just, you're not just talking about a country or a continent, you're talking about the world, really. Because what happens here might have consequence for other countries. So that is why it, there have to be an international agreement and consensus on how to deal with it. And there have to be strict rules. We don't want a situation. That is why we are saying you can't just go to a few people you've paid, manipulated. We're talking of where people generally give their consent before you proceed on a project. And it has to be people, not just people. Like I said, for me, it doesn't cover just the whole of West Africa, because I live in West Africa and mosquitoes, those mosquitoes, if released in Burkina Faso, would, would not only fly because they cannot tell those people, oh, you're wired, just stay in this particular location. They mm. have to be international agreement because this species or creatures, these corporations are turning out from their labs, would have that consequence, not just for a particular country or a particular region, for, for many regions. It's the same old story, isn't it? The failure of corporations and of, of capitalism to acknowledge that everything's connected in terms of biodiversity, in terms of the environment on our planet. Our environment has become, and our, our, our fields, our, our territories have become like more like a playing ground, test ground for these corporations. I mean, would they do that in the US? I have also heard that in some countries in the US, I think somewhere in the US, they tried to do and the people said no and they went, went away. Is it because our government would just take anything? You feel we, we, we don't have a say if our government says yes or some few people in the government or some few people in the community, that means a general yes. Oh no, that is not a yes. That is being selective. And also the Katarina Protocol that says where there is doubt, exercise caution, hold the brakes, they won't proceed on doing anything. But because they feel they are playing God and they have the money, they have the resources, they can just do whatever they want. It's not acceptable. It's really very wrong. And that our people also are being looked down on, which again sparks the issue of colonialism and control. It's so patronising. It's like this front of faux moralism, but really it's about getting their toe in with industrial agriculture. Yeah. But pretending that it's about coming in and saving people. They always pretend about everything. They come in under the guise of, oh, we're trying to help poor, hapless African people and then farmers and all that. And then the same thing they're about doing, they're taking away the food, they're taking away the land, they're taking away the power, they're taking away the control. How is that help? We're taking away everything and giving nothing. I mean, before it's with the issue of GMOs. Oh, they said, oh, we don't have enough food. That is why they want GMOs. And we don't have enough land to grow food. They came in and then they came with land grab. We have enough land. We don't have like wasteland lying around for them to come and do things. And yeah. then they with land grabbing. And they said, oh, they want to grow biofuels. I mean, they change the narrative whenever it suits them. Yeah. It's all about them. It's all about big corporations, big time business people. They are merchants, as I call them trying to do business in our environment. You care nothing. Because if you want to help me, you should be speaking with me. You don't have any business speaking to corporations and going to speak to a few people, a handful of people. And, and We are not lab rats. We are not guinea pigs. We mm. are not. So I think the people in Australia, people all over the world should come together because we are one people. We are, we are, there's no planet B. What is the implication? Nobody, they don't really know what are the far-reaching consequences or implications of this. So you might think you are on the other side of the world, or on this side of the world, but you don't know what would happen. These things are carried by wind, by pollution, by a lot of things. People commingle, people are traveling, a lot of things happen. So it might also spell doom for the people there. So it's about time we come out in unity. People can also demonstrate. 
and say, we don't want this. What is happening in Nigeria is, is unacceptable. These are people, these are human beings. We should stand up, stand up for them and speak. Also stand with us in solidarity to say no to gene drives. We are not lab rats. We are not guinea pigs. We are not. We are saying no to gene drives. And that was Mariam Basse Oruje from Friends of the Earth Africa and the Alliance for Food Sovereignty Africa, or AFSA. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Zara Malou is an independent journalist and filmmaker from Kenya who produced a documentary last year about what's been really happening in Burkina Faso called A Question of Consent. Obviously, it's a really radical technology, and particularly because it's being used with animals. And the main feature that seems to be so far that stands out to me is that it can be used, this technology can be used to wipe out an entire species, theoretically. So the, mm-hmm. so the implications are huge in that sense. The big push so far, as you've said, is with the mosquito gene drives. And the focus with that now is in Africa and especially in Burkina Faso at the moment, but more trials proposed elsewhere in other African countries. And that research consortium is Target Malaria, who are funded by the Gates Foundation and one of the Facebook co-founders and also funded by the US military, by DARPA. Um, So the consultations have been going, the so-called consultations have been going on in those communities now, Target Malaria, say they've right. been conducting consultations. But you were recently there. When were you there exactly? So I was there in early October last year for about two weeks. I went to visit the communities in which Target Malaria is planning to release their mosquitoes. This was around the time there was a lot of hype around the fact that Target Malaria wanted to release their 10,000 male sterile mosquitoes in Burkina Faso. And so I was very interested in finding out what's really happening in Burkina Faso. It's a very new and quite extreme technology. And then just thinking that this would be tested in West Africa somewhere was quite concerning. I wanted to know what actually people really thought. Are you able to tell us much about what was happening on the ground when you got there? So basically, Target Malaria has been saying that it has obtained the consent of the people in the areas where it wants to release these mosquitoes. And they talk a lot about their community engagement process. They say they involve all the different stakeholders. And so the primary objective was to find out who knows about this issue, where they really consulted, do people in these communities know what a gene drive is, do they know what's going to be coming, do they agree with this technology and so on, because it will be the first time that a gene drive will be released into the wild anywhere in the world. And these are two small rural communities, uh, you know, even quite far away from the capital of Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso. So I went there with a couple of activists to see what people thought. And so there's two villages and they're close to the second largest city in Burkina Faso called Bobo Diolasso. So Bobo Diolasso is the city closest to these villages where the mosquitoes will be released. And initially we spoke to a lot of civil society activists and so on who were saying that they were never consulted by target malaria. And this is, you know, a city that has quite a vibrant civil society. There's women's groups who said they were never consulted. They don't know anything about what's happening. They are very concerned about the potential impacts of such an experiment. And then finally, we managed to go to the villages. And it was really actually very complicated to get there. There's two villages marked for the release. Like I said, one is Bana and the other is Surkudingan. In the village of Bana, there was all this sort of strange communication with the leaders of the village who initially they said we could come and then they changed their mind and then when we got there we were basically prevented from going inside the village like just to speak to people and in the second village as well there was a lot of um, controversy over our coming there the first time we went we were not able to speak to anyone including the leadership of the two villages was not possible to speak to them there was quite a lot of hostility And then a second time I went with a a translator and with an assistant to the mayor of Bana village. Initially, we spoke to the sort of village elders and the leaders of the village. 
the customary chief, for example, and they were very sort of uncomfortable with us being there. And then when we spoke to other residents of the village that were sort of further away from the center of the village, we found out that they had not been consulted. They did not really understand what the process was. They had never really given their consent individually for this release. And it seems like it's just a small group of of the leaders of the village who had basically signed off on the project on behalf of the rest of of the people. So, uh, you know, I mean, when you talk about free, prior and informed consent, and you talk about, you know, engaging with people, it just clearly didn't seem like this had been done. So when you went in, you were with local activists from Burkina Faso, weren't you as well? You weren't just by yourselves. So did they also not really know what was going on and have trouble getting information on it as well? Yes, the two uh, activists that I went with had actually visited Bana village before, and they're quite well known in Burkina Faso for being opposed to these gene drive trials, and they've spoken to the media and so on. And so when they went to the village, it was clear on, on whose side they were. They were concerned about this technology, and they wanted to speak to people from that perspective. They had asked the villagers before for the consent forms they had signed with Target Malaria. And it was a difficult meeting that they had had before we had already gone there. So it could have been that, you know, that played a part in the hostility that we had. But on the other hand, there was another journalist from La Libération that also tried to visit the communities and face a similar very hostile reception. So it's difficult to really pinpoint, you know, what was the, the reason. But we also heard rumors that someone from Wagadugu had called them saying that they should not speak to us. So, you know, mm. this is, of course, unverifiable. But, you know, they had been to that village before. However, they hadn't been to the second village, which where we also received a lot of hostility. So, yeah. And it's always tricky and complicated and hard to know when you're sort of looking from the outside what politics might be. But it's clear that there are some red flags in regards to transparency with the process, which isn't too surprising. And then getting back to this consent question... So far with community consultation, what we're seeing is this really narrow and geographically focused consent process in these really specific areas. And yet, as you've pointed out, referring to the wider impacts in Burkina Faso, but also we know when we're talking about this kind of radical biotechnology, the impacts are likely to be much more widespread. And what, what is consent really? Like we know that mosquitoes don't need passports. So is consent just going to be this narrow, defined thing, or do we need to be talking more about consent in geographically broader terms? Well, I think, at least from what I understand, a person cannot give consent if they don't understand what the experiment is about and what the potential impacts are. And the problem with this particular technology is even the people testing it do not know what the impacts are. It is an experiment which, of course, creates a lot of concerns and, you know, images of, you know, this sort of colonial experiments that are done in remote areas. This technology is imported from outside. And then, you know, that's why it's called free prior and informed consent, is that people actually need to understand what this technology is to begin with. You know, Target Malaria said that we can't really obtain the consent of each and every single person. That's very complicated. But I think one has to obtain the consent of each and every person because, you know, as we saw, a group of leaders have signed off on behalf of other people who don't understand what this is about. So people really need to be consulted in an ethical way. And I think they also need to be provided with information that's independent of target malaria. If you go online and you read most of the media articles about target malaria in Burkina Faso by international media, they seem to control the entire process. And there isn't information available that's from independent sources for people to actually decide, is this something we really want? And this kind of information also has to be contextualized. You know, people need to think about the fact that genetically modified organisms were introduced to Burkina Faso in the form of BT cotton before. It had quite a devastating impact on farmers. People need to know where the funding for this technology comes from, the fact that the U.S. military has actually given so much funding to gene drive technology. There's all this information that should be made available to people in order for them to make up their mind if they really want this technology or not. Target malaria doesn't appear to talk about consent as much as they talk about engagement and community acceptance. So it seems as if they've already decided that this experiment will go ahead and it's a question of convincing people that it's the correct thing to do. 
what we're seeing is hype, not facts. And yeah, actually, I think it's really important to point out with the informed part of consent. We need more transparency. We need more information. There's ethical considerations around the transparency. Also, I mean, the other thing we saw is that there are some people who are getting paid to catch mosquitoes within the village in which they'll be released. And that's a very small minority of people who are getting added benefits from participating in the project. And they're getting treated for malaria if they catch malaria, whereas other people in the village do not have that privilege. So already you're introducing this this incentive to buy into the project. For certain people, they're getting an income. So again, it causes the issue of consent to be very complicated because obviously people have an incentive to say yes if they're getting paid. And where there's hype, there's always a profit motive behind, especially that kind of level of, of hype that's costing the kind of money that this hype's been costing. And also with the gene drives, the main feature seems to be that they can be used to wipe out an entire species, which of course has got to be horrifying to anybody, literally horrifying in regards to the biodiversity considerations and potential unknown health impacts. But ironically, the industry behind this technology has been using the conservation argument as part of their hype to sell this project, as well as the public health angle. Given the major players involved with the tech, do you think it's more likely that the big profit drivers are likely to be agribusiness and bioweapons? Yeah, absolutely. Gene drive developers are keeping the agricultural applications away from the public view while focusing on these very nice sounding conservation projects and, you know, health projects. And it's very easy to say to people, well, all these people are dying of malaria, you know, we should help them. You know, this kind of argument that's uh, of saving poor Africans from from (laughs) diseases. But in fact, there clearly are other interests. I mean, already, if you have so much investment from the US military, one has to ask oneself, well, what is all that about? But, you know, there are firms like Monsanto Bayer, and others that are actually quite engaged with gene drive development. And there's research into looking how bees can be modified, for example, to be more receptive to light beans, for example. You can modify crops to be particularly receptive to certain herbicides. There are all kinds of ways to use gene drives, not just as an extinction technology, but also as a way of controlling agriculture. So that's definitely something that uh, is not as well known or not as well publicized, but it's definitely there. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. At the 2018 United Nations Biodiversity Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, in November last year, African rights groups, indigenous peoples, food sovereignty activists, NGOs, scientists and conservationists were calling for an international moratorium on gene drive technology. However, the Gates Foundation funded a private PR firm to lobby, infiltrate and exert influence on African government delegates and UN processes against the moratorium and in alignment with Sinbio interest groups. We were there from the beginning till the whole end. We witnessed everything that went down. The African delegates have always, I mean, always championed the defence of our biodiversity, protection of our seeds, indigenous agroecological practices and culture. They've always, always advocated the need for a precautionary approach. In the past, our African delegates have strongly, I mean strongly, because I've also been part of most of these uh, CBDs in the past, and we've been part of some um, drafting when we have the African model law, strongly defended our ecological life support systems. I mean, from threats such as the terminator technologies, I'm sure you know about them, ETC propounded the term, designed to be sterile. Yeah. So at the at the meeting at the CBD, we are now, I mean, civil society groups and movements and the farmers and even our comrades were alarmed. Our concerns for our environment, biodiversity and communities were actually being betrayed by our own brothers and threatened by the delegates from some of our African countries, notably the delegates from Nigeria and South Africa, where like the mouthpiece, official mouthpiece speaking on behalf of Africa as a continent, you know. So we felt that most of that, uh, this thing, uh, most of the African continent's delegations were bought by target malaria and maybe by the by corporations because I don't get it. We are still, like I told you, we are still grappling with the threats from basic genetically engineering associated agrotoxins and do not even have experience or capacity for basic regulation as I speak, you know, of the risks for these first generation genetic technologies let alone these new 
technologies with symbio uh, gene drives. So we were shocked to see that our people who should be protecting us, who should be speaking on behalf of our people, were singing the tune of these multinational companies. I cried. I was like, these are supposed to be our leaders. And there they are, speaking as if they are PR agents for Monsanto. You know, they are fallen from that altar of grace we placed them, that pedestal. And they were slavishly replicating and regurgitating the positions of the interests of these biotech companies shamelessly. And we were telling them we don't want to be used as lab rats. This is a huge experiment. This is something that's not been done before I mean, Africa. What about the far-reaching implications on our people, on our farm, on our environment, you know? Before they even came to this conference, they've already had a meeting. We knew if different countries were speaking on themselves, maybe they were in different positions, but they came as a block. And then if the people, African people, were saying, this is what we want, other countries like strong delegations like Bolivia, who were speaking up really for their people, were just alone. I mean, they were trying to protect us, our people, from this huge experiment. They're going to be lab rats. And here we have our delegates singing and speaking as if they've been, I mean, they were like actually PR agents. It was really shocking for us. Really, 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 really shocking. Because we felt that um, the policymakers at the seat were dazzled and bought off. And they don't represent the views of farmers, African civil society, who as a block, and I'm sure you've seen our position on that, rejected gene drives. But they saw it as a silver bullet and as usual, I mean, they buy over these copy and paste technologies. And I mean, I, I, for me, I feel they're more like the hired helpers of these corporations to implement their, or do their dirty job. Because most times all you're accusing, you cannot tell us Africans what we want or what we do. So I think the strategy they use now is to infiltrate our policymakers and get them to speak their language while they sit behind in the shadows and remove control them and say, hey, go and do it, boys or girls, do what we want to do. So that is what really happened. So there was this deep betrayal and unfortunately the moratorium didn't go ahead. From what I can gather, there was still some success in that 196 countries agreed to a list of guidelines in the treaty on the use of the gene drive technologies that in some ways kind of almost amounts to a moratorium, uh, particularly in regards to that inclusion of the consent guidelines. How do you feel about the guidelines? Are you happy with the outcome in that sense? Do you feel like it was like maybe the next best thing if we couldn't get a moratorium? Absolutely. So for me and for our groups, we felt fine. We wanted a moratorium, which would have been the right thing to do, considering that these are new technologies that are fairly new and people are grappling with them. But since we did not get that, we felt the, the COP decision to put in place a precautionary conditions that parties and others should consider before releasing gene drives organizing to environment was fair enough. For us, we feel there is a need for a serious implementation of this UN decision because projects of uh, gene drives like the GM mosquito that's going to be released in Burkina Faso. And of course, you know, with these projects, you cannot curtail the mosquito and tell mosquito, hey, you mosquito, A or B, don't fly, just stay contained. These are life forms. Once you release them, you cannot control them. You cannot, you, you cannot detect where they go or the boundaries. So we felt that the CB decision calling on um, a precaution and also the issue of prior informed consent from those who may be affected, like communities in, uh, in Burkina, um, even West Africa, before even considering the release was very good. And for us also, we felt that just asking uh, those at the point of release, like just going to Burkina and just asking maybe a few people for concert is not enough. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's not. Since the aim of a gene drive is to spread. So it has to explicitly include much wider concert of other communities. We don't want to compromise that. Whole, if possible, whole regions, maybe the whole of West Africa, because I live in West Africa. Burkina Faso is not far from us. Mosquitoes can travel thousands of kilometers on winds. So we are saying getting such consent just isn't uh, just by saying that uh, we've gotten, Target Maria came to the meeting and said, oh, we got the consent of people and they have things. It's not just enough. You have to get the consent of a wider people who might be potentially affected by your pro- projects. I mean, they said, um, I mean, they would argue and say, oh, 
getting such consent isn't feasible, but then it shouldn't proceed with something that is incompatible with democratic principles. And we've said, I mean, me and my colleagues have said this is an externally imposed colonial project. If you ask me, it's colonial imposed. They should have started by asking what local approaches they are or what local people are interested to explore. But instead, these people who feel they're doing us a favor arrived on people's doorsteps with a ready-made technology, pre-existing plan, large PR budgets, and cameras luring, of course. And then they are saying, oh, they're doing us a big favor. The Gates Foundation have been funding gene drive research, and they've also been funding the US Cornell Alliance for Science, which again is a pro-industry GM group. We're really concerned that the Gates Foundation are using their money for this end. It's obviously ideologically driven on their part, but we think it's really problematic. The Gates Foundation paid a PR company to organise scientists during the Convention on Biological Diversity discussions to have a coordinated front to basically oppose international calls for a moratorium on gene drives. And unfortunately, they were very successful. What's in it for the Gates Foundation? Like, what do you think their ideologies are in that regard? I think it's this idea that technology is going to solve all the world's problems. But I think you just have to look at history to show that that is seldom the case. If you actually look at what technology has achieved for us, undoubtedly there are some really useful technologies. There's wind power, there's solar power, but there's also a range of technologies that have actually just led to increases in human consumption. Technology is not this panacea that's going to solve all our world's problems, but I think people that grow up in the technology space, it's a very tempting worldview that we can get out of the enormous problems that we're having globally through techno fixes. But unfortunately, I really don't buy into that notion at all. There should be informed consent whenever gene drives are used, which kind of almost amounts to a moratorium because how do you get global consent when you're releasing something globally and potentially you could basically impact on anyone in the world, couldn't you? So how do you get informed consent? And I guess that's going to be focused on in the further Convention on Biological Diversity discussions. But we would argue that there's obviously a need for global consensus before gene drives are used, as it's a technology that could potentially spread globally. I mean, that's one thing that's notably missing with the proposal in Western Australia. I mean, there'd be very few people in Western Australia that would be aware that there's a proposal to release gene drive mice in offshore islands there. And sort of looking around, both locally and internationally, there seems to be a lot of what looks like hype in regards to the health and conservation angle. But it makes me wonder what the real agenda and driving force behind this technology is, who's ultimately profiting from it and how, especially as you mentioned earlier with the bioweapons angle and also with industrial agriculture. Yeah, I'd just say very definitely. And that's very clear from if you read through the gene drive files, they've really tried to play down the potential agricultural applications of gene drives because they're trying to have this moral imperative argument. Oh, if, if we don't introduce gene drives and malaria is going to spread globally and all these people are going to die. It's like, oh, well, we have to do this. But if you actually look at the players, it's the same um, GM crop companies that are involved in existing GM research. So, for example, there's growing weed populations that are resistant to Roundup now. So there's a proposal that, oh, we could introduce a gene drive into those weeds to re-engineer glyphosate susceptibility into, into those weed species. Again, so they can sell more herbicide. And we know there's a connection between Monsanto, I believe, and that US department, uh, DARPA, Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, that seems to be the primary funder for gene drive technology. And CSRO have also got um, commercial relationships with Monsanto and Bayer, but unfortunately we can't get the nature of those agreements because they're commercial in confidence. But, yeah, it's obviously really disturbing. We've got a publicly funded research agency that's partnering with these giant multinationals and we would argue has got serious conflict of interest. And yet those same individuals from CSR are advising government on whether gene drives should be regulated or not. So Mark Tizard, who's one of the scientists involved in this project, is actually sitting on the government's advisory committee advising them on, on how gene drives should be regulated, which we think is completely inappropriate.
I guess it seems obvious why the US military would be investing hundreds of millions on this research and development of this technology, especially given DARPA's historical affiliation with Monsanto and that sort of thing. But what I'm also really confused about is why these Silicon Valley giants like the Gates Foundation and the Open Philanthropy Project are funding it. Do you think it's just ideological for them, like white saviour complex and Western technology hubris, or do you think it's something more than that? No, no, I think the fact that there are for you know profit-driven motives that are underlying a lot of this development are a key factor in why there would be investment in it. Um, also, we have to remember that you know the Gates Foundation has historically pushed a very neoliberal agricultural agenda, which would involve again the similar sort of agribusiness companies being involved in agriculture in Africa through, for example, the Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa is also a Gates-funded, and they are pushing this sort of very privatized model of agriculture. And of course, the Gates Foundation has historically also invested in Monsanto. So those links between, uh, you know private philanthropic foundations and for-profit companies are quite clear. And so, of course, it's not just altruistic interests that push them to be involved in these projects. And the same goes for the health sector. You know, um, the Gates Foundation has also been pushing quite a privatized model of healthcare on the global south and, and Africa as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems to me that these are the kind of facts that need to play a much larger role in this free, prior and informed consent than they have been grassroots people in Africa are not being provided with this information by the Sinbio interest groups. Yeah, well, the question is, where would they get that information from? That information mm. is not readily available uh, anywhere, and especially not in French and in other local languages. And so, uh, of course, Target Malaria is not, doesn't have the incentive to provide them with independent information if they're trying to implement this project. So I think that's where, you know... Uh, People need to work together across different, you know, civil society movements and groups need to work together to, to try and, and, and put that information together and make it available to those who, who don't readily have access to it. Although, of course, you know, this information, as I was saying, is not readily available. As the UN Convention of Biological Diversity has clearly said that you must actually obtain the pre prior informed consent, there is an onus of responsibility on people like the Gates Foundation and Target Malaria to provide information that is complete on the project that they are pushing. But they also have a responsibility to let people know uh, about all the aspects of the project, where the money is coming from, what an extinction technology is, what kind of impacts it may have, and so on. That is their responsibility if they're carrying out a proper process of consultation and to provide independent information that you know, is not just in line with their interests. And, of course, you've made a short documentary as well, A Question of Consent. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, A Question of Consent is the it's a 15-minute uh, short documentary that we put together based on the investigations that were done in Burkina Faso. It's basically a short film that features voices from different parts of Burkina Faso, namely Ouagadougou, Bobo Diolasso, the city close to the test sites, and then it's the one village of Bana where we spoke to a few villagers who don't know very much about the project, and then a neighboring village, which is not marked for the project, but will most likely be affected by the release of mosquitoes. The film basically highlights some of the issues and concerns that people have in Burkina Faso, and it's, yeah, it's called A Question of Consent. It's in English and French. There have been demonstrations going on since mid-year last year, locally and a bit more broadly in Burkina Faso and in Africa, and also in other places in the world. Can you recommend any other ways people can stay in touch with what's happening with the issue? Finding out from the groups on the ground what they are doing and supporting them in their mobilizations and in their research. There's always things that need to be done, translation. There's a group called the SCCAE in Burkina Faso. They are working on this gene drive issue. So is Copagen. C-O-P-A-G-E-N. And then, of course, Exetra Group works a lot on gene drive issues. I mean, it would be very helpful if people sort of investigated a little bit this narrative that we really need these new technologies to fight things like malaria because it's, you know, it's not necessarily true. Absolutely. There used to be malaria in the US and in Europe and Australia even, tropical parts of Australia. It's no different to sub-Saharan Africa. Why is malaria still in some places and not others? Yes, I mean, there was recently a report that showed that Zanzibar 
had cut new malaria cases by 94% between 2003 and 2015, by 94%. And, you know, the WHO last year's announced that Paraguay had eliminated malaria. There were other countries on the way to doing so, Sri Lanka, uh, I think it was Azerbaijan or Algeria. You know, there are countries that are actually making progress in cutting malaria. And I think that a lot of this has to do with making treatment available to people who don't have resources, thinking of prevention methods of prevention, investing in public health infrastructure and in public health systems. There are multiple ways in which one can reduce malaria without resorting to developing extinction technologies whose effects we don't even know and that could be potentially catastrophic. And when you think about that and you think about the money that's been invested in the gene drive technology being pumped into Africa, you think it's really disingenuous, isn't it? It's like if you really wanted to help Bill Gates and everyone else, why don't you just put the money into these other tried and true methods of eliminating malaria? So we would really urge people to get in touch with the federal agriculture minister and the state agriculture ministers and, and urge them to do the right thing and make sure that these techniques are regulated. If people want to get more involved in our campaign, you can jump on our website, which is emergingtech.fo.org.au, and you can sign up for updates and we'll keep you updated. Yeah, people can support us. We have like APSA, there's a group like HOMEF doing a lot. A lot. We have groups also who are helping, helping us. We have ACB, we have ETC, we have Friends of the Earth. As I said, there's a lot of films on this gem, Mosquito and Ginger. We only have one film produced by ETC. So if we have people supporting us, we can also galvanize people, do more of these short films, get people to hear the people from the locality speaking. We are just doing this because we know this is the right thing to do. If we don't do it, who else? So we have a handful of people, we don't have money, all we have is our strength, all we have is our voices, all we have is the people in the grassroots, in the communities, the indigenous people are backing us. So we have, we can even bring most of these people to meetings, like mm. the CBD community, so they can hear from the communities, because what they do, they bring in most of these government people to speak on behalf of the communities. We bring in our people, we do exchange visits, we talk to these people, we build capacity to understand what is going on. They go there and tell them lies. Oh, didn't drive, you're going to solve, there's going to be mosquitoes. They don't tell them the truth. So if you have enough money, we'll be able to go more, visit most of these communities, because Africa is big, and we need to have these conversations. We can have tribunals, we can have workshops, we can have consultations, we can produce more films so people see for themselves, because not everybody can travel. We can also get people, get most of our people to go for these um spaces where these discussions are taking place and where decisions are made because the CBD is only the international space where they're trying to craft out regulations. There's no other body that does this. So we can get more of our people because they went there in numbers. They brought in their researchers, they brought in their scientists, they brought in people who they are coming there and speak. But we, we are just few. Most of us, some people even fund themselves using their own bigger resources. So if you have people supporting this, because they are very good groups to support. We have like groups like uh, ETC, Friends of the Earth, HOMEF, AFSA, ACB, TWN, who have been there supporting us. We can have, we can do more because it's all about passion because so far it's, it's been our blood, our sweat, because we're going or are speaking, please help us. These people that are trying to drown out our voices because they come there in numbers. I mean, they fly business, they put them in good hotels, they give them all the right conditions and get even our people to fight with us. But if we have the resources in front to get in people who come in and tell the truth, I think that will go a long way to help. I do too. I feel like uh, there's a lot of power there and it's just really about getting that information out. People yes. power and triumph against corporations. People power. They are saying no to gene drives, no to gene drives. And for you corporations, hey, hey, support the fight, solidarity forever, stand with justice Stand with people, people power, when we fight, when we are together, we win! You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott. This week on the show we heard from Louise Sales at Friends of the Earth Emerging Tech Campaign about the latest scary update on gene drive and CRISPR technology in Australia. You can find out more about or get involved with the campaign at emergingtech.fo.org.au. We also heard from Marion Bassi Oruje from Friends of the Earth Africa and the Alliance for Food Sovereignty Africa about the latest scary update on gene drive and CRISPR technology in Africa. 
You can find out more about or get involved with that campaign at afsafrica.org. We also heard from Zara Malou, an independent journalist and filmmaker from Kenya, who produced a documentary last year about what's been really happening in Burkina Faso called A Question of Consent. You can check that doco out at zaramalou.com. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in bringing you this program today and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Thank you.